and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very, very, very special guest, Sivan Piatigorsky-Roth. Sivan is an artist based in Boston, Massachusetts. He's currently attending rabbinical school there, and he's the author of the forthcoming graphic novel, Diana, which is about that princess, your favorite. It's coming from Street Noise Books in 2023. Welcome to the show, Sivan. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I just called you Sivan. I mean, I call you Siv because we're friends. Both work. (laughs) Both work. Hello. So Siv, what is your relationship to Little Women? Okay, I read it when I was a young girl and I liked it, but I don't think it was super formative in the way I know it is for some people. And then I reread it a few years ago. I've seen the movies, more recently the Greta Gerwig one. I'd say my relationship with it is positive, but not super in-depth. And so which March sister are you? And keep in mind, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. I think I'm an Amy. Okay, wow. Okay, tell me more. Something about her. I remember reading it and being like, that's my girl. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) I respect her. She feels like a Leo. I'm a Leo. Okay. That's interesting. I would not have in a million years pegged you as Amy. So that does surprise me. More important question. You are, as I said, you're the author of the forthcoming graphic novel, Diana. Which March sister was Diana? Oh, what a good question. I feel like Diana was a Lori. Interesting. Now say more about that. I was torn between Lori and Joe. Okay. There's something very contrary about her, but something kind of also, I feel like not quite as contrary as a Joe. Right. Like like towing the line, but a little bit more polished. You know what? That fits so well. Black sheep of this wealthy family, right? Mm -hmm. Disrespected by a, well, a grandparent parental figure. Exactly. (laughs) Heartbroken. Now I'm doubling down. She's a Lori. No, that absolutely tracks. Princess Diana is absolutely a Lori. I think they would have a lot to bond over. And, you know, I look forward to Timothy Chalamet portraying Diana. When are we getting that? I wonder. Why wasn't he on the, you know, the audition list with Kristen Stewart? Such a good question. Did you see the Kristen Stewart movie? I did not. I couldn't bring myself to. Right. Um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. We talked about this. I knew it would get me all worked up. (laughs) Yeah. You don't like to see Diana movies or Diana-related media? I don't like it. No. no. The exception would be when you came over and we watched the Princess Diana musical. Yes. Although, to be clear, <laughs> I didn't love that musical either. No, I. <laughs> it's a hard one to love. A lot of problems, but enjoyable. It's on Netflix if anyone is curious. Music and lyrics by the keyboard player from Bon Jovi, if you want an idea of the, <laughs> the tone of the musical. My goodness. So, Siv, what is the chapter we're talking about today? Do you want to give us a rundown of chapter 10? The PC and PO. Yeah. So the March sisters have this club where they take on the personas of men and write this newspaper. They each have a little bit in and it appears that they can just kind of write whatever they want. They take on the persona of these literary men and read this thing and write it and have this little club. Joe would like Laurie to be a part of it. And there's some initial, will we let him? Will we not? But eventually the sisters agree that it's 
Lori, he's March's sister. He appears. He has apparently been there the whole time and joins the club. That's right. And now we talk a lot about transness and little women. Obviously, that's kind of the point of this podcast. There are a few occasions now where I've said this has to be the most trans chapter in Little Women, but Lou Alcott is crazy for this one. Yeah. If this is not the transist chapter, it's definitely high on the list. Also one of the most reliably trans scenes in every movie. Yes. Because uh, all the March sisters are dragged up and then Lori comes out also dragged up doing boy drag. So good. It says, I can also pretend to be a boy. I do it all the time. Yeah. So now let's get started right before we dive into the Pickwick Club, because it's it's named for Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers. They're kind of cosplaying their favorite book is what's happening here. But right before we get into that, there's a brief section here where we learn that all the March sisters have plots in a garden. They each have specific things that they're doing. And each, each girl's garden is a reflection of her personality. What we learn about Joe's is that her garden bed is never like two seasons. She's always trying experiments. This year, she's growing sunflowers. The sunflower seeds are going to feed the their chickens. Beth is growing pretty flowers with things for the birds and catnip for the cat. And Amy is planting as many brilliant pictures plants as would consent to blossom there. So it's a little thing before we dive into the real transaction of the chapter. But what do you think this little section is saying about who Joe is and who the girls are? It feels like just a really beautiful picture of each of their personalities. I love that Joe is experimenting. I love that Beth wants nice, beautiful, smelling things. And Amy's feels so creative, which is the thing I love about her. And I like Meg's little orange tree. That's so cute. It's so cute. It makes me so happy. I want to try out some of Meg's oranges for sure. There's a dividing line in the book between the Meg Amy team and the Joe Beth team. We know that they have a deeper bond with one another than even than with their other sisters. And I'm struck here by Joe and Beth both have functional gardens. Joe wants to grow these sunflowers and use the seeds to feed the chickens. And then Beth is, she's growing chickweed for the bird and catnip for the pussies. So there's sort of an understanding here of making something useful, something that'll help take care of the animals in their care, which I'm I'm struck by. Meg is pretty and kind of functional. We get an orange tree, she's going to make some food, but then Amy is just glamour, extravaganza. I love it. That's what I love about Amy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, that makes makes a lot of sense. After this very brief foray into their garden, we dive right into the Pickwick Club. And so where do we even begin with this? So this is, it's a rainy day amusement, right? On sunny days, it says they're gardening, going out for walks, rows on the river, flower picking. And the Pickwick Club is sort of their Saturday evening, rainy day activity. They have a weekly newspaper called the Pickwick Portfolio, which they all contribute to. And Joe is the editor. They're all taking part. And the interesting thing here is that all of them are in drag, being these male characters, enacting these personas. So what do you make of all of them taking on these male roles? I mean, it feels very true to how I played, but I'm (laughs) all trans, so... Who knows? They pick these great names. All of the names are amazing. I love the pronouns. It's like they're really 
embodying these characters. They're just so committed to this. I guess it's a game, but they're so committed to it. It's so fun. Yes. So the names are Meg is Samuel Pickwick. Joe being of a literary turn is Augustus Snodgrass. Beth is Tracy Tupman. And Amy is Nathaniel Winkle. So, I mean, great names all around. Great drag king names. Was Tracy a, a man's name? It is. Yeah, he's a he's a character from this uh, Dickens novel. Have you read the Pickwick Papers? I have not. I hate. Neither Dickens. have I. I mean, we're we're abdicating our duty <laughs> for the podcast, <laughs> but I hope you'll understand. Maybe you've also heard this writing advice, but we're told a lot not to put pop culture references into our books because it'll date them. And so I'm I'm kind of charmed by Alcott just dropping this giant, essentially pop culture reference of the day <laughs> into her novel, and just being like, if you haven't read the book. Sorry. <laughs> and it still works if you haven't read the book. Like. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One quick thing to note here, we get a bit of description about Beth, both in this intro and then in a poem that Joe writes. Beth is described as being round and rosy and then rosy, plump and sweet. What's interesting is that doesn't tend to be a part of the way that Beth is portrayed on screen as being yeah. a big girl. I was struck by that. It's a small thing here, but it, it's interesting. And I think it's potentially relevant to what later happens with Beth, but we don't have to get into Beth's death right now because I'm not prepared to think about that. Then we get this newspaper that all of them have contributed to, some more than others. Joe describes themselves here as old six-foot snodgrass looming on high with lefantine grace, beaming upon the company with brown and jovial face. I, again, I, we, just, we just live for Joe being extremely tall, clumsy, sun-tanned, happy, Love that for Joe. What struck you about this first poem? I think the ending, the long may our paper prosper well, our club unbroken be, and coming years their blessings pour on the useful gay PC. It says it's their 52nd anniversary, whatever that means, but love this vision they have of this club being this enduring, defining thing. So the 52nd, we hear that they meet every Sunday evening. So maybe this is, they've been meeting weekly for a year. That's some serious dedication. Yeah, that's commitment. I don't doubt that Joe the Taskmaster is making it happen every week. That's still impressive to get four young people consistently present and involved in this. Especially Amy, who, (laughs) if we can skip ahead here, there's a, Amy's kind of only contribution here is a very brief note where she writes, Mr. Pickwick, sir, I address you upon the subject of sin. The sinner I mean is a man named Winkle who makes trouble in his club by laughing and sometimes won't write his piece in this fine paper. I hope you will pardon his badness and let him send a French fable because he can't write out of his head as he has so many lessons to do and no brains. In future, I will try to take time by the fetlock and prepare some work which will be all Camille Faux. That means all right. I am in haste as it is nearly school time, yours respectably and Winkle. And and you have to understand, there's not a lick of punctuation in that entire paragraph. It is all running together. All of these voices are so distinct and so indicative of who these people are. It's really such a good job was done on this paper. Yeah. Oh my God. So we have Joe's poem and then this is followed up by a little story by Meg, which is charming. A tale of love at a masquerade ball and a pair of lovers evading an arranged marriage while masquerading. First of all, this has a lot in common with kind of the blood and thunder short stories that Alcott wrote just for the money, right? Lou Alcott really loved to write a scandalous, tawdry romance 
tail. <laughs> and this has a lot in common with that. But one thing to note is that when I was at Harvard in the Alcott archives, they had a manuscript there that was actually co-written by Lou Alcott and by Lou's older sister, Anna Mae Alcott, who was the real life Meg. So there's some evidence that the real Meg and Joe co-wrote together sometimes. That's so cute. Yeah. And in case there was any doubt, you knew that Anna Alcott had had a hand in writing this particular story because Lou's handwriting is a mess. It's legible, but it's not neat or tidy. She's prone to errors in spelling. And you have to understand this manuscript I looked at that Anna had written out by hand. It looked like it was typewritten. It looked like it, it was a font, like every was so neat and tidy and all the lines were perfectly straight and I was like okay you are your character I love that yeah the real life Anna Alcott loved a fairy story of romance just as much as Lou did what distinguishes this from being a Meg story as opposed to a Joe story is that the romance is pretty straightforward. There's the initial twist of the lovers being masqueraded, but then all is well. And Lou's stories tended to be a little bit naughtier than that. I meant that as not K-N-O-T, but naughty as well. <laughs> they both work. Yeah. There does seem to be, maybe just the name Viola tipped me off. There does seem to be a bit of an influence here from Twelfth Night. That was a fave of Lou Alcott and obviously a very trans play. <laughs> so. Yeah. The names are very Twelfth Night. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you, do you have any further thoughts on The Masked Marriage, A Tale of Venice? Feels very classic, classic Meg. I am unsurprised yes. that this is her contribution. Yes, absolutely. And just thinking of the ideal of romantic marriage, especially over arranged marriage, which we know is going to be important for Meg as well. And the next portion is from Beth. And it's just so, I have to read it in full because it's just so sweet. Wait, what's the brief two lines prior okay. to, is that also Beth? That looks like a joke. It's not attributed. I would guess it's from the editor, the yeah. editor being Joe. She says, why is the PC like the Tower of Babel? It is full of unruly members. All right. Do you have any rabbinical school insight into the Tower of Babel reference here? I mean, that famously did not end well. <laughs> <laughs> like from a language perspective, I don't know what it would be saying if they're all like working on this joint endeavor with language. And the implication is that they're unruly and somehow similar to the Tower of Babel. It feels like she's saying this is all, she being Joe, is saying <laughs> that, that they're all somehow disjointed and speaking different languages in here. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that would seem to make sense. They're headed that direction. But yeah. either way, it seems like, a, like possibly a poor omen for this newspaper. Potentially, let's hope not. Let's go now to Beth's story, which is completely adorable. I have to read it. This is so oh. indicative of who Beth is. Okay. It is called The History of a Squash. Once upon a time, a farmer planted a little seed in his garden, and after a while it sprouted and became a vine and bore many squashes. One day in October, when they were ripe, he picked one and took it to market. A grocer man bought it and put it in his shop. That same morning, a little girl in a brown hat and a blue dress with round face and snubby nose went and bought it for her mother. She lugged it home, cut it up and boiled it in the big pot, mashed some of it with salt and butter for dinner. And to the rest, she added a pint of milk, two eggs, four spoons of sugar, nutmeg and some crackers, put it in a deep dish and baked it till it was brown and nice. And next day it was eaten by a family named March. 
so freaking cute. I can't even. Also, I want to try that recipe. Yeah, I'd love to do that. There's a Little Women cookbook, which I am very curious to check out. Little Women cooking. I'm very curious about it. And this does sound delicious. It's very true. What strikes you about Beth's contribution here? It seems like she has no ability to to do fiction, <laughs> which I respect. That's a quality I share. Yeah. Everything is what it is and it's yeah. what she's experiencing. Nothing hidden, nothing trying to be clever. You get what you get and what you get is adorable, sweet Beth who can never do anything wrong. It's very much like once upon a time, everyone had a nice day. <laughs> yeah. Which is a beautiful dream. It is. It's beautiful. I love, you say she's terrible at fiction, but I think it's notable here. She uses once upon a time and you think you're getting a little fairy tale, but it just turns out to be, well, we ate squash last night and it's just the loveliest possible. I also, I like that it's the history of a squash. Yes. Yeah. It follows her dinner from its source. Farm to table, acknowledging every step of the process. I guess tracks with her garden earlier on, which she said was a practical garden. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep. living that farm-to-table life. That farm-to-table life, that sustainable, every step of the process, acknowledging the labor of the farmer, the grocer. And the little girl who bought it for her mother. And the little girl. I think the little girl, it sounds like Amy from the round face and snubby nose. True. We've already talked about Amy's one brief contribution here to the newspaper, which is pretty much a little note that says, sorry, too busy. (laughs) As our resident Amy, what do you make of this contribution here? She was busy with school and that is fair enough. No judgment here. I'm in the middle of finals. I get it. And I am willing to forgive it. No questions asked. Joe is essentially making everyone do a newspaper, like an extracurricular activity on top of everything. And we get a bracketed reply from, I have to assume the editor, Joe, who says, Amy's contribution is a manly and handsome acknowledgement of past misdemeanors. If our young friend studied punctuation, it would be well. So I just, everyone's a critic. (laughs) Everyone is a critic. Next up, we have a cat guest here. Tiff's cat is here. So this is relevant. Under the headline, The Public Bereavement, we get some talk of the sudden and mysterious disappearance of our cherished friend, Mrs. Snowball Pat Paw. She sounds lovely. What, what do you make of this little passage? I'm just, I'm heartbroken. <laughs> if Schmutz, that's my cat, disappeared, I would be beside myself. Weeks have passed, but no trace of her has been discovered. And we relinquish all hope, tie a black ribbon to her basket, set aside her dish, and weep for her as one lost to us forever. It's very sad. It's very beautiful. And Joe has also written a poem, a lament for S.B. Patpaw. Did you like this poem? The second of Joe's contributions to this paper. <laughs> I did. I loved this poem. And it reminds me of my favorite poem on the death of a cat by Franz Wright, which is. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read it? I do. Yeah. Okay. In life, death was nothing to you. I am willing to wager my soul that it simply never occurred to your nightmareless mind. While sleep was everything. See it raised to an infant power and perfection. No death in you then. So now how even less. Dear stealth of innocence. Licked polished to an evil luster. Little milk fang. Whiskered night friend. Go. Goodbye cat poem. Goodbye cat poem. It hit me in the heart. How do you think Joe's poem stacks up to that? (laughs) It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. It's a strong contender. Mm -hmm. A bit about not knowing where her grave is and being sad about that. Yeah. Sad. It's a little dramatic, but I respect that. I, I respect that as well. I like the nod here to the irreplaceability of Snowball Patpaw. Another cat comes after her mice, a cat with a dirty face, but she does not hunt as our darling did, nor play with her airy grace. 
Joe has previously been said to have a pet rat called Scrabble. We speculated that Scrabble might just be any number of mice that live in the March home. And every time she sees a mouse, she's like, that's my pet Scrabble. So I, I like here that Snowball Patpaw is special. She is irreplaceable. There's no one like her. There's no one like her. There's no one like her. There, there are many cats and kittens throughout Little Women. And there's a beautiful scene in the 1994 version after Amy has fallen in the pond. Maybe it might mm-hmm. be Beth who's sick. In. Anyway, one of the sisters is sick in bed and there is a basket of kittens and kittens just keep coming out of the basket. Like they, there must've been 50 kittens. They are just like never ending kittens swarming on this blanket. It's just lovely. Okay, Beautiful. Yes. Okay. Now what is next? We get a, a, a series of little advertisements. First up, Miss Orenthy Bluggage, the accomplished, strong-minded lecturer, will deliver her famous lecture on woman and her position at Pickwick Hall next Saturday evening after the usual performances. I want to know who Miss Orenthy Bluggage is. Let's look this up. Let's do some research. Yeah. Mama, let's research. (laughs) Orenthy Bluggage. Come on. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, wow. This is okay. This is from John Madison. He's giving us the full answer here. In her early 20s, Alcott developed the Dickensian persona of Oronthy Bluggage as a mouthpiece for original comic monologues. This was just a, a Lou Alcott OC. Love. Based on Dickens. But not, there's not a Dickens character named Oronthy Bluggage. Lou just made her own creation. Yeah. And in 1855, in her journal, she writes of delivering my burlesque lecture on woman and her position at the home of her uncle. Samuel Greel. As a young woman, Alcott saw women's rights as the stuff of satire. Later in life, she grew more serious on the subject. Okay, so is this a satirical? Is it safe to assume this is a a satire of the idea that women should have rights? Well, well, Orenthy Bluggage was a mouthpiece for original comic monologues, and Alcott described this as a burlesque lecture on woman in her position. So, wow. I mean, I can't speak to the content of the Orenthy Bluggage speeches. I don't know if they survive, but it might be problematic. <laughs> we'll have to put a pin in that. I would say currently my main exposure to Little Women is I very closely follow a bunch of evangelical Christian influencers, as you know, YouTubers social media presences who are very fundamentalist right-wing people, young women mostly, all of whom are obsessed with little women. Love it. Um, Hold it as the text on how to be a respectable young woman. I always wonder how this kind of stuff lands for them. What their thoughts are there? I would kill to have that conversation, but I never will. Obviously, this is a queer trans leftist podcast about little women, right? But little women, it has a hold on the evangelical community, which is funny because it was banned by the Christian Union when it came out. And it, I don't know, it reads to me so trans and yeah, feminist yeah. and focused on these ideas from a critical lens. Oh, yeah. I guess people just read that and are like, yep, woman's position is in the house. We know that Lou Alcott, she did become a really strident advocate for women's suffrage, but we know that she was also kind of at odds with womanhood and girlhood throughout her life, to say the least. And I'm sure that was informing some of it. Also, as to what you said, obviously, there's so many radical threads in this text, but I think there's also a lot that makes it very appealing to the evangelical crowd. The radical impulse and the conservative impulse are at war with one another in this text. I can have a trans podcast about little women and... Also, Pure Flix, which is the Christian film company that released God's Not Dead and that abortion movie, 
what was it unborn Does, is know. this ringing any bells at all <laughs> no but i'm gonna have to watch these after. no okay so yeah sorry distributors of films such as god's not dead god's not dead 2 hillsong let hope rise god's not dead a light and darkness Unplanned is the abortion movie, which tells the harrowing tale of a Planned Parenthood nurse who is doing an abortion and sees the fetus wiggling away from the- Oh, I know about this. Yes, that movie. Not good. <laughs> Not good. That company, Pure Flix, also distributed in 2018 a modern retelling of Little Women. Right. So they can do that and I can do this from the same text. Isn't that wild? And both are in there. My first copy of Little Women was given to me by my older brother's girlfriend, who was a Mormon, with, I assumed, the intention that I would absorb good Mormon Christian lessons from it. Yeah. And now I'm like, this is the most trans book ever. What is this? And both of you were right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Just... There's no evidence that Lou Alcott enjoyed writing this book. In her journal, she wrote, when she was asked to write a girl's story, I never liked girls or knew many. Mm. <laughs> so, so some of this was just trying to fulfill the contract, get the paycheck. And then some of it, like the character of Joe and what the relationship between Joe and Lori means, obviously that was heartfelt and very personal to her, but definitely these are at war on the page yeah. and perhaps awesome. nowhere more so than this, this joking thing about the woman in her position lecture. Yeah. We don't know what that is. Maybe Ornthy Bluggage is a suffragette. Maybe she's a reactionary. We just don't know. I wonder how much of, I don't know, I guess this whole book is also just like a, a figuring out of how to be a girl and what that means. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think that Joe ever resolves that tension. I don't think that Lou ever did. No, but possibly doomed <laughs> mission. Yeah. And it's interesting. The next note in the advertisements is a weekly meeting will be held at Kitchen Place to teach young ladies how to cook. Hannah Brown will preside and all are invited to attend, which is, you know, that's, that's incredibly traditionalist. Also, they've been pretending to be men throughout this whole journal. And, and here we start to get some acknowledgement of their girlhood. Yeah. And then another sweet reference to Beth. She's opening her new assortment of dolls millinery next week. The latest Paris fashions have arrived. Orders are respectfully solicited. So respect a businesswoman. Respect a businesswoman. Respect a doll rehabber. Yes. Right? Amen. I, I feel that I'm a Joe, but as far as affinity for dolls, affinity for rehabbing broken and injured dolls, I'm an absolute Beth. I like to think Beth would be part of the American Girl doll rehab scene as Siv and I both are involved. She'd be active on the Facebook page. She absolutely would. How are how are Molly and uh, Rebecca doing, by the way? They're amazing. In the like free giveaway room at my rabbinical school, I found a doll-sized Torah. <gasps> so no way. I snagged it for Rebecca, so... I don't That's know, lovely. You know, she can have her bat mitzvah. Yeah, she's going to read her portion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I have brought over Kit. She'll be with me for the rest of the recording. She's beautiful. Next up is a new play appearing at the Barnville Theater in the course of a few weeks, which will surpass anything ever seen on the American stage. The Greek Slave or Constantine the Avenger is the name of this thrilling drama with three exclamation points by Joe. Now, I don't think this is a Joe Wayne play. No, no, I think I think she's just genuinely stoked for this play that's going to be coming through town. Amazing. Yeah. Joe going to the theater. This is right on the heels of the traumatic going to the theater and then Amy almost dying incident. So (laughs) this Mm. is not that play. This is not what Joe and Lori were out seeing that night. But God bless. All right. Last (laughs) section of the newspaper hints. 
this is a Joe subtweeting, or I don't know who's subtweeting. I, it seems like they're all contributing to this. Okay. Like a brief area to air grievances. Yes. So first up, if Meg didn't use so much soap on his hands, he wouldn't always be late at breakfast. Shade. Okay. Joe is requested not to whistle in the street. Now I'm saying their names, but they are, you know, they're, they're named by their Pickwick names here. I'm just trying to not confuse people. TT, that's Beth. Sorry. Please don't forget Amy's napkin. And then Amy must not fret because his dress has not nine tucks. So <laughs> Amy's going to fret. Amy will fret. Awesome gender stuff happening here. To say the least, to say the least. <laughs> we have barely even gotten into the gender stuff that's happening here. We've just acknowledged that they're playing boys. And then the very final section of this newspaper is maybe the best eight words in the whole book. Okay. Weekly report. Meg, good. Joe, bad. Beth, very good. Amy, middling. Yeah. (laughs) Who wrote that? Who knows? Who wrote it? (laughs) By what criteria? I believe it, but... (laughs) Oh, I believe it. (laughs) So then we get this little aside. As the president finished reading the paper, which I beg leave to assure my readers is a bona fide copy of one written by bona fide girls once upon a time. So a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge here that this may have been actual play of the Alcott sisters, at least drawing from what they wrote in their own fake newspaper, which I love. Again, I have Kid Kit Ridge on my lap, right? So <laughs> tomboys writing fake papers, homemade papers, rather. Kit's paper is real. This is also real. I apologize for misspeaking, but it's, I love writing newspapers as a form of play. Yeah. You know, I love it as a, as a way of, of sibling bonding and as a means of gender expression as well. I love that they all are members of this literary society together. Now we're getting into really the crux of this chapter when Joe proposes that they add a new member and that member be none other than Lori Theodore Lawrence. So do you want to read Joe's little speech here? Mr. President and gentlemen? Yes. Mr. President and gentlemen, he began, assuming a parliamentary attitude and tone, I wish to propose the admission of a new member, one who highly deserves the honor, would be grateful for it, and would add immensely to the spirit of the club, the literary value of the paper, and be no end jolly and nice. I propose Mr. Theodore Lawrence as an honorary member of the PC. Come now, do have him. There's a sudden change in tone, which I imagine takes place around, come now, do have him. She's been in character and then she breaks character to plead a little bit. She's called Joe in that moment instead of Snowgrass, but she is. Yes. Otherwise. We're hopping between identities here. So he began Joe's sudden change of tone. Snodgrass took his seat and made the girls laugh. We're hopping in and out of these little identities here. Beth puts it to a vote. Joe says yes. Beth timidly says yes. But Meg and Amy are contrary minded. Yes. And it's Amy who rises to say with great elegance, Mr. Winkle rose to say with great elegance, we don't wish any boys. They only joke and bounce about this is a ladies club and we wish to be private and proper. She's saying that in her Mr. Winkle persona. I love that the text maintains her Mr. Winkleness throughout that little speech. She's saying this is a ladies club when they have all been pretending to be men. I want to be clear about one thing. The book does not say that they are dressed in drag at this point. They have made badges four white badges with a big PC in different colors on each. And they tie the badges around their heads, but that's the extent of the costuming here. So they're not all in drag as is often portrayed in the films. I get why the the movies do that, (laughs) but they're just pretending to be boys. Lou Alcott did like to be in drag as men at costume parties. There's journal letter evidence pointing to that, indicating that explicitly rather, but they're not in drag here, but it's just, 
Amy is saying suddenly the the boy play is over. Amy is saying this is a ladies' club. We don't wish any boys. So that's Amy's objection. Meg's is sweet. Meg says, I'm afraid he'll laugh at our paper and make fun of us afterward. Meg is just self-conscious because it is a very private, familial, dorky kind of thing, this paper. Yeah. It's a nerdy little, little thing. I get that. Yeah. And Meg is very concerned with appearances and image. Meg is, of all the sisters, maybe the one who has kind of most successfully adapted to life outside the March family. This is also coming right on the heels of the one where Meg goes to her debutante ball and mm. Lori is mean to her. <laughs> so maybe the feelings are a little raw there. Yeah, it's not an unreasonable objection. Yeah, yeah. Meg is not as close to Lori as Joe is, or even many of the other sisters are. So yeah. this makes sense. So Meg and Amy raise these objections and then Joe bounces up. Sir, I give you my word as a gentleman. Lori won't do anything of the sort. He likes to write and he'll give a tone to our contributions and keep us from being sentimental. Don't you see? We can do so little for him and he does so much for us. I think the least we can do is to offer him a place here and make him welcome if he comes. It's a very Real Housewives rattling the table moment. (laughs) Amy has just said, this is a ladies club. And Joe is still saying, sir, I give you my word as a gentleman. And one note I made here is that everyone else is pretending, but Joe really isn't. This is just a way of Joe, who we know is desperate to be a boy or a man, to get to be that for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And so here, right after Amy has said, I give you my word as a, after Amy has said, this is a ladies club, Joe says, I give you my word as a gentleman. Joe's not letting letting it go. If Joe has a chance to be a man, Joe will take it. Yes, absolutely. So finally, after Joe says this, Beth reiterates her support. She says, we ought to do it even if we are afraid. I say he may come and his grandpa too, if he likes. Beth is just incredibly polite. Also, I love the, mm-hmm. I love the admission that she is afraid of doing it. Yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah, this makes me nervous, but it's the kind thing to do. Beth is especially afraid of anyone outside the family, maybe especially afraid of boys and men. So it's significant that she's welcoming not just Lori, but his grandpa into this club. In that sense, it feels maybe like a more a broader admission of Lori and his grandpa into the March family, period. Yeah. Because it obviously helps. grandpa's not going to like be contributing to the paper. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, yeah. I don't think I don't think grandpa would be interested in participating in this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Joe leaves her seat, shakes hands, demands that they vote again, says, everybody remember it's our Lori and say I. Three voices at once say, I, I, I. As soon as it's agreed, as soon as they vote, Siv, Joe threw open the door of the closet. And displayed Lori, sitting on a rag bag, flushed and twinkling with suppressed laughter. I love to twinkle in the closet. That's just... <laughs> yes. If that's not a metaphor, I don't know what it is. What I want to know is, what is the history of coming out of the closet? Okay, real quick. I want the exact etymology of coming out of the closet. The present day expression coming out is understood to have originated in the early 20th century from an analogy that likens homosexuals introduction into gay subculture to a debutante's coming out party that tracks coming out of the closet. This I'm just reading from Wikipedia here. I apologize. This is the level of scholarship you're getting here. Coming out of the closet is a mixed metaphor that joins coming out with the closet metaphor, an evolution of skeleton in the closet, specifically referring to living a life of denial and secrecy by concealing one's sexual orientation. So now I have to see when did skeleton in the closet begin? Wait, that's so cool. 
skeleton in the closet. We're getting early 20th century at the very latest, which is to say Lori coming out of the closet would not have meant back then what it means to us now. Skeleton in the closet or the cupboard was used as early as November 1816. Okay, that's the extent of my Wikipedia for this episode. But Lori's coming out of the closet to join this club. Love that for her. You rogue, you traitor, Joe, how could you? Cried the three girls as Snodgrass led her friend triumphantly forth and producing both a chair and a badge installed him in a jiffy. Meg says the coolness of you two rascals is amazing. No one can be too mad. It's Lori. And then Laurie introduces himself to the group. He says, in the most engaging manner, Mr. President and ladies, I beg pardon, gentlemen. So again, the gender is just, it's, it's a roller coaster in this chapter. Nowhere is the line thinner than it is in this chapter. Laurie describes Joe as a faithful friend, a noble patron. Mm-hmm. He says that he planned the strategy of tonight and she only gave in after lots of teasing. So Joe is simultaneously a gentleman and a she. One thing that I'm struck by in this chapter, both in, in this Lori explaining their plan, and then later on, it's said that Lori is helping to edit Joe's work. He says he's remodeling her own work. I'm struck by the extent to which Joe and Lori are becoming one person. The lines between their identities are blurring. Joe and Lori are kind of becoming a unit outside of the March family. Yeah. And I don't I don't know that Joe's ever had that with anyone outside of her family, a closed unit like that, where they have secrets and their relationship functions on a level that it doesn't with her sisters. So that's very special. Yes. Is Lori based on a a real person? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. Lori is based on a few real people, principally Alfie Whitman, who was a friend of Lou Alcott's from Concord. No relation to Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. by the way, just Alfie Whitman. He was a boy. He was about uh, 10 years younger than she was. I believe they met one another putting on a Dickens play, actually, in Concord, where they played a couple. And when they corresponded, they would re- they would refer to one another by the names of their characters in the play. Oh, wow. Yeah. The letters to Alfie are the place where Lou most lets loose about gender stuff. Letters to Alfie Whitman are where we get things like Lou saying, I was born with a boy's spirit under my bib and tucker. It's where we get her describing herself as a gentleman at large and a man of all work. She tells Alfie when she goes to a costume party dressed as a monk in drag with a beard and passes as a man and Mm -hmm. flirts with women. She's telling Alfie all that. So her relationship to Alfie was really a place where she could let loose and talk about gender and her gender feelings. That's beautiful. It it is beautiful. She proposes that she and Alfie run away to Europe together and be sailors, like two male sailors from a book. I love her. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. They're incredibly affectionate. I think they're a bit homoerotic, honestly. But certainly the letters to Alfie are where a lot of Lou's most gendered male sentiment and behavior come out. So Alfie was one of the inspirations for Laurie. The second was a Polish boy we've talked about before. I say boy, I I mean, he was around 20 years old and she was in middle age, but this was a Polish boy named Laddie that she met when she was on tour in Europe. They spent a week in Paris together. They were extremely close. And we know from her own journals that she kissed Laddie at one point, but that was sort of about, about as far as it went romantically. And then Add Alfie and Laddie kind of fused to become Lori. She told Alfie, Lori is you and my Polish boy jointly. And in her archives, I found a check for $400 made out to Laddie. And in the memo line, it said Lori of Little Women. So <laughs> Whoa. that's who Lori is in real life. 
at any rate, these were very intense friendships slash more than friendships that were very ambiguous and allowed Lou a space to explore being a boy, which is obviously the same function that Joe and Lori's relationship plays in the book. And it might help to explain why she was so adamant that Joe and Lori not get married because whatever those relationships were, they were not that of a heterosexual love. The very last thing that happens is that Lori takes on the name Sam Weller, another Dickens character. And as a token of his gratitude, he installs a post office in the hedge between their two houses. He gives everyone keys and they all pass their tragedies and cravats, poetry and pickles, garden seeds and long letters, music and gingerbread, rubbers, invitations, scolding and puppies through this mailbox. I'm not sure how I feel about puppies being in the mailbox, but I trust that they're okay. Yeah, that that also raises some questions, but. Oh, and. (laughs) As has just been said, Beth invited grandpa to be part of the fun and the old gentleman rather liked the fun and amused himself by sending odd bundles, mysterious messages and funny telegrams. I love grandpa. We love grandpa. Yeah. Oh, it also looks like the gardener for the Lawrences, who is smitten with Hannah's charms, Hannah being the housekeeper, sent a love letter to Joe's care. How they (laughs) laughed when the secret came out, never dreaming how many love letters that little post office would hold in the years to come, dot, dot, dot. Do you have any thoughts on the function of the post office here? Aside from it just being such a beautiful little idea and place for these characters to swap mm-hmm. their ideas and serve a similar function with this newspaper, I don't think I do. Do you? I'm curious because at this point, Little Women Part 2, where they all get married, was not in the cards at all. And there's not a ton of romance in this first book. I guess, you know, we do get the foundation of Meg and John Brooke, but... I'm curious about this, how many love letters that little post office would hold in the years to come. Because Lou was quite irate at the feedback from so many young girl readers who were like, but who marries who? Are Joe and Lori going to get married? And it seems like she's kind of seeding some romance here. So that's interesting. Do we get follow through on that? Do we, I don't remember, do we ever find out what love letters this is referring to? I guess we will have to see. I don't know that it plays a significant role in John Brooke and Meg. Amy and Lori don't take off until the next book. And she never intended Joe and Lori to be romantic. So I'm really not sure what that could be referring to. Very last thing is that Lori begins to contribute to the paper. His contributions are excellent, patriotic, classical, comical, or dramatic, but never sentimental. Joe regarded them worthy of Bacon, Milton, or Shakespeare. (laughs) Joe's a little whipped and remodeled her own works with good effect, she thought. So they're sharpening each other. Like yeah. Lori is making Joe a better writer, which is an interesting, I think, under discussed aspect of their relationship. That writer friend who's also a good writer and helps you become a better writer. That's <laughs> very sweet. It's very sweet. And that's a really important, beautiful relationship. It is. Yeah. And you get the sense that she says earlier, we can do so little for him and he does so much for us. I think the least we can do is offer him a place here and make him welcome if he comes. Yeah. Although, I mean, I do get the sense that they do a lot for him. Oh, they sure do. Like emotionally. But yeah, they're indebted to him in many ways. Yeah, they absolutely are. I think it's a poignant illustration of how Laurie's material wealth really doesn't give him anything. He only flourishes and becomes a person when he's in the company of the March sisters, which I love. We've gone through the whole chapter now. We barely addressed the gender of it all. Oof. Any final thoughts on the, the absolute gender of it all? There's just so much. Yeah. I remember that feeling loving. I'm not an actor at all in any way. 
But I remember the joy of, I played Rocky for many years in a Rocky Horror Picture Show Shadowcast. Yeah. <laughs> and remember just the joy of getting to be a man in yeah. a gay space and just how important that was and how freeing that was. That feels every <laughs> like it's everywhere in here. If you were like me, maybe you had any time you could dress up in a costume and be a man for Halloween. That was always a really big deal. I remember in grade 10, I was Forrest Gump. Mm. You know, I have always been a the weirdest kid imaginable. When I was Forrest Gump, I had a little Bubba Gump shrimp hat. In grade 12, I was Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the social network had just came out. So I had Social network, Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. Yeah. I had a Harvard hoodie and Adidas flip-flops and a curly blonde wig. I carried my little Chromebook around all day. I had a business card that said, I'm CEO, bitch. Like I, you know, I, I was 17 and I it just, it was the funniest thing ever. And no one, I went to an all girls school, right? So there were relatively few opportunities for kind of male drag, even in drama club productions. Anytime there was a male role, we would sort of contract out. We would open auditions to the local boys school and they would mm -hmm. come and audition. So yeah, the joy of that game drag. It just feels like a very joyful, really yeah. beautifully fun, happy chapter. Yeah, it is. It's so lovely. It's making me think about this latest season of Drag Race, which I don't, I don't know if you keep up with Drag Race, but one queen came in, a trans woman out. And over the course of the season, no less than four other contestants came out as trans women and said, I'm just so inspired by Carrie and what she's doing. It's in the same way that drag can be a form of expression for cis gay men or cis men, period. But it can also be the way that some people find their true identity. And I think maybe that's what's happening for Joe here. And, and to an extent, Lori. Lori getting to perform boyhood in a fun, cute way rather than having it forced upon him. He seems to get a lot of joy from that. Okay. Yeah. Now, Siv, you and I first met in the Infinite Jest Hell posting Facebook group. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. And we've been discussing the similarities between these two seminal works of Massachusetts gay literature, Infinite Jest and Little Women. What, what do you see as the principal similarities between these two books? I mean, first, I would argue both are about being transgender. <laughs> <laughs> A controversial claim. Yes. <laughs> But I will make it <laughs> with, of course, understanding that everything is more nuanced than that and yada, yada, yada. So that's number one. Yeah. Two is family dynamics, sibling relationships, absent father, very present mother, tense political landscape. Yes. Yes. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Absolute Massachusetts. The biggest similarity in my mind, we have these two protagonists, uh, Hal and Candenza of Infinite Jest, and then Joe March of Little Women, who are both certainly easily readable as queer in some form. Or at the very least, obsessed with gender. Obsessed with gender. Implications of that in some way. Yeah. And Joe never wants to get married. Hal is the only student at the Enfield Tennis Academy for whom virginity is a lifelong goal. Mm -hmm. Both have very close confusing boundary-free relationships with a close friend. Yeah. Perhaps the close friend wants to take it to another level, whereas Hal and Joe are kind of ambivalent about that. And they both, I mean, Hal is a lexical prodigy. Mm -hmm. Joe is an incredible aspiring writer. Yeah. They both love to read. Hal can't do anything but read by the end of the story. And neither are... I'll say it, neither are great communicators. Yeah, well, do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> How more famously so. In fact, some would say he loses the ability to communicate entirely. 
Joe, I love her, but she's a she's a bit of a hot mess. She is. She is. <laughs> we both have a. I was going to say sick younger siblings, but Mario is actually a year older than Hal. Yeah, but Funk certainly. Yeah, certainly Mario in Ken Denzel fulfills the Beth role. Yeah. In little in God in Infinite Jest. <laughs> little Jest. Little Jest. And I think Oren is really the Amy of Infinite Jest. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Just an absolute girl boss. Absolute girl boss. Willing to stir the pot. Willing to stir the pot. While we're on this subject, I realize like comparing Amy March to Oren and Ken Denza is like the worst way I could possibly get into this. But among the very few changes made to the original manuscript of Little Women between writing and publication, when Amy goes to Europe, she's written as a huge flirt who just flirts it up with lots of boys. And that was very true of the real life May Alcott. But Lou excised all that. She took out all of Amy flirting in Europe, really made it more about courting with Fred Vaughn. And so that's very Oren is the expunged history of Amy being a huge flirt. Love. Although. Yes. I would say Oren doesn't have a crush on, on anybody. He's emotionally (laughs) pretty shut off. However however else you want to characterize Oren's hookup pattern. (laughs) He's horny. He's a horny guy. Yeah. And Amy likewise. All right. Well, this has been a lovely very brief discussion of the similarities between Little Women and Infinite Jest. Thank you, Siv, Thank for you. humoring me. And oh while I have you here, where can people find you on social media? I am on Instagram at Sivan Basha. Cool. And you have a website as well? Oh, yeah, I do. SivanPiatagorskiRoth.com. All right. I will put that in the show notes. Please follow Sivan on Instagram. And it's not ready for pre-order, but when it is, pre-order Diana. Siv's amazing graphic novel about Diana Princess. All right. (laughs) And I am your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. Thank you. Tune in next week. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.